0: Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Expose, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Your hosts are Wild and Exposed, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and NANPA's very own Don Wilson. Thanks for joining us.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Nature Photographer Podcast brought to you by Nantha and the guys at Wild and Exposed. Tonight we have Amy Gulick, who I hope I didn't just catch that name wrong because apparently I've been saying that wrong all these years. And we also have Ron Hayes and Jason Loftus from Wild and Exposed. So welcome, Amy. Calling, You are calling in from Washington, I believe, correct?
2: Yes. Yes. And thank
1: you for having me. For those of you that are Outdoor Photographer readers, you may be familiar with Amy's column in Outdoor Photographer. Um, on some, I'm not sure how frequently you have have that column, but I know it's it's in there several times a year. So that's always informative. You've been doing that for quite a while now, haven't you?
2: Yes, I believe I'm going on my seventh year.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's in cool. it's in
2: every other issue,
1: and the name of the column is called the Big Picture. Well, definitely, definitely check that out. There's always some fun. Fun pieces of information in there, Amy. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, how you you got to where you are today, and some of your some of the things you've worked on over the years? Not sure how far back you want me to go, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I
2: I'll, I'll go back to my childhood because that's really where I think a lot of this started. I was one of those feral kids, you know, who was always outdoors. Um, climbing trees you know messing around in a pond Um, I was usually bleeding somewhere you know dirt all over my face Uh, my hair was matted and and I loved it (laughs) just you know every waking hour I could spend outdoors I was outdoors Um, and I think so just the passion for wildlife and 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 plants and you know certainly species other than my own. Um, that, just, that just grabbed hold at a young age. Um, and then I, I also had a passion for storytelling uh, at a really young age. And I don't think that that's unique uh, at all. Um, I think that's just how human beings uh, relate to each other. And it's how they make sense of the world around them and try and figure out their place in it. Um, and we've been doing this since the dawn of time, you know, so dawn of human time, you know, sitting around the campfire and sharing stories and looking up at the stars and telling stories about what we think is going on, you know, in the sky, whether it's thunder or lightning or the northern lights or something like that. So I think for me, just those kind of those twin passions of, of nature and storytelling, um, that's just uh, that that's just never mm-hmm. left me. Um, and so when I was young ish, I don't know, nine or 10 or so, I think we had, the, my family had a, a Kodak pocket camera. And I laugh at that term now pocket camera, <laughs> because everybody's got a camera in their pocket that happens to be a phone. Um, but this, you know, this pocket camera was pretty revolutionary at the time because it really did fit in your pocket uh, and it was a camera. And I think um, I my dad put that in my hands. And when I, the second I could really figure out what a camera did, I was like, wow, like this is going to change my whole world as far as this is how I'm going to illustrate my stories. um, And this is how I'm uh, going to tell stories um, uh, about what I was seeing, you know, in nature. So um, again, those passions just never left. Um, You know, I I grew up, of course, I went to college, I actually got a business degree, uh, of all things, which has served me very well, believe it or not, in in this field of, of conservation photography uh, and, and storytelling. It served me, w- served me well in many ways. Um, but, uh, but yeah, just that. And I'm, I'm a writer as well as a photographer. So, um, and I always kind of, I always joke, I, I'm always kind of suffering this identity crisis. It's like, well, am I a photographer or am I a writer? And what I finally figured out is that I'm a storyteller whose tools are photographs and words. Um, so that's how I uh, uh, tell my stories. And then I use my stories um, for the conservation of nature and whatever kinds of projects I happen to be working on at the time. And that all evolved, um, you know, when I started to publish my work uh, in magazines and, and uh you know, various outlets, um, it, it first started out with, you know, I was doing stories on, say, outdoor recreation or maybe the natural history of an area or a wildlife species. Um, and the more I started doing those kinds of stories and the more time I spent like researching, the more time I was spending in wilder and wilder places. Um, and and the deeper I kind of went into the backcountry um, the more I really started to realize just how special these places are and and that there are a lot of threats um, to them as well and then I realized that a lot of people were not going to places where I was going, and they weren 't seeing what I was seeing, and they didn 't know about the threats but it also does, but it didn 't mean that they didn 't care about these things so i I kind of felt this responsibility to come back you know from a lot of my uh, adventures and experiences, and share what I was seeing with people. Um, you know the beauty and and just the like incredible, you know diversity uh, of of wildlife and 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 just like these fully intact functioning ecosystems that I was experiencing to come back and share that, but to also share um, the threats um, to these places. And what I found was, um, people didn't necessarily have to go to a place to to care. And and but that they really appreciated, you know, a firsthand account, um, uh, a story, you know, photographs um, of someone who had been there, um, and and then uh, and then I, I realized the power of these stories to actually motivate and inspire people um, to then do something, you know, on behalf of these places. I
1: love your phrase, feral kid. <laughs> that just <laughs> resonates. I think all of us could probably. A- associate with that terminology where i know i was the same way as a kid always getting yelled at by my mom you know coming home with sticks in the hair and you know cut some scratches oh where were you today now you know you're not supposed to you know wandering off on my bike that kind of thing
0: so i just got yelled at if i came home
1: (laughs) well that's not a good thing either (laughs) well if
0: you're back before dark you're doing something wrong right
1: yeah that's right yeah that's true and things are definitely different for kids today. They, mm-hmm. they definitely, you know, and I think that's part of, you know, what we're trying. I think all of us are always trying to talk, you know, when we talk about conservation and being outdoors and, and using, you know, photos and words. To, it, that's part of it. It's encouraging, you know, whether you're a child or an adult, to just be outdoors more and really take in what's around you.
3: Yeah, it's not very common anymore, is it? Kids don't grow up that way. Um, they kind of lose connection with the things that we. Got to benefit from, so I love that. That, I, that hit me too when you said that. I mean, I, I, I laugh at you know. How did we know what time it was? How did we know when it was time to come home?
0: It was dark.
1: Yeah, streetlights yeah, came, street yeah. came on. the yep. streetlight <laughs> came on. Right, yeah,
3: come on, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: which is even yeah you know, a little after sunset. That... Right,
3: right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, dust yeah.
1: is happening, or the or the, or the neighbors
2: that. or the neighbors parents are out looking for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> right, All right, that, everybody's for sure. <laughs> round, rounding like doing the roundup of the local kids.
1: <laughs> yep. yep, somebody's <laughs> parents yelling down the street. Yeah. No, it's, you know, it's a shame more kids aren't, don't do that these days, but that's why we're all doing what we're doing. So, right. But I know that's something that you're really passionate about. You already touched on a little bit, Amy, about how you use photography and writing. I'm similar. I am very similar in that I've had people ask me, I do both as well. And I've had people ask, well, are you a writer that takes pictures or are you a a photographer that also writes? And And no, it's a storyteller. And those are, Those are the tools you use. Those are the mediums that you're using to communicate that. And sometimes it starts with the words and you fill in the photos to support it. And sometimes it's the photos that you go, hey, I have a story here and now I'm going to put some words around that. So I can definitely appreciate that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I've, I've really found, you know, the more I've been doing this, it's like. You know, you know that, that cliche phrase of, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, I've also found, you know, a, a picture can certainly tell a story, but words can also paint a picture. And, and sometimes I think words can actually paint a picture better, you know, than a, than a photo. But I also think sometimes a photo can tell a story better than words. So it's just that it's that combination of the two that's just so powerful and and the other reason you know that and the other reason that stories are so powerful no matter how we tell them and what kind of tools we're using is that as human beings we are just hardwired to relate to stories i mean again you know when you think of literacy in the world that's literacy as far as you know reading and writing has really kind of only been a thing for a couple hundred years and and when literacy was was first kind of a thing, um, you know, it wasn't available to the masses either, so, and there's still parts of the, you know, the world that aren't terribly literate either, so, yeah, so again, how did we make sense of our world, how did we relate to each other all those years prior, you know, to reading and writing, Uh, we told stories, so we're very, our brains are just hardwired to relate to stories, and a story is really, you know, nothing but cause and effect, You know, when you think of once upon a time, something happened, and then something happened after that, and then what happened? It's just how we think all day long. So when someone tells us a story, um, we just dive right into it. And if a story is well told, particularly using visual images um, and hopefully a compelling, you know, verbal or written story, um, we activate, you know, all parts of our brain. Um, And so the listener, the viewer of that story um, is actually, it's as if their brain is experiencing the story. It's as if they're actually in the story that's being told to them. So that's why stories can be so powerful.
1: You know, one of the things I always think of when I read something that's really attractive to me, it's a story that's really impactful, is that you get those words where you get the the senses that you don't get from reading or looking at photos, you know, the, the smells, the sounds. Those are things that the words can can very often give you that sense of being there, and then you know a visual if if it's beyond just a standard portrait, if it's something that has foggy conditions or you see dewdrops on things, then you start putting that together as well.
0: To go along with that a little bit, you know, especially as we talk about conservation photography, and we're going to get into that a little bit more, but a, an image itself allows other people to write the narrative based on. You know their context and so when you add the when you add the verbiage when you add the actual story to be able to kind of fill in the fill in the missing pieces a little bit it it gives them the context that they don't have firsthand and and that's where you know as a conservation photographer we're responsible for making sure that the context is correct not just having you know the great the great image and I think that that's where the you know everything that you guys have already said kind of comes into play.
2: I teach conservation photography workshops and 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 mentor folks uh, in in conservation photography and and a lot of uh, people starting out you know, you know wanting to use their images for conservation you know they'll 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 look at me and they say well I am not a writer you know so and 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 in addition to well I'm not a writer. Um, you know, here's this image, doesn't everybody understand what it is that this image is trying to say to them? (laughs) You know, and and my answer to that is it's like, well, it's, it's pretty rare to find someone who sees the same world that you see. And so, uh, yes, you just made a powerful image, but without, you know, some kind of a a caption at the very least, or maybe a, a short paragraph without that context, you know, to go with it, you know, people are going to interpret that image in as many different ways as there are people viewing that image. Um, so I, I'm always pretty um, adamant that it's like that. You know, conservation photography is all about the story that you're trying to get across to people. And so, yes, mm-hmm. the image is important because the image, if it's powerful, it's going to engage and draw
1: people in. But now, what is it that you want them to know? That's probably a pretty good segue to go into. You know, the power of photography and you know you talk about the you teach a lot about the power of visual storytelling uh, so so what does that that mean to you how do you teach that to other people that that you that are kind of on the fence as to what that means i think i always start with you know kind of w-
2: what's the difference between say nature photography and conservation photography and in my mind, you know, nature photography, and there's nothing wrong with this whatsoever, is you know, we go out, we go out and we look for incredible scenery or interesting wildlife or something that moves us, something that we're passionate about. And we make, um, hopefully, gorgeous, stunning photos of, of something that we find interesting or beautiful. And then that's kind of it. Right, then we stop there. Maybe we make prints. Maybe we put them on the wall. Maybe we sell prints. Maybe we try and get those images published. Um, But 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 it's kind of the job is done pretty much. Kind of when you click that shutter, right? But to me, conservation photography, the real work begins after you've clicked that shutter. It's now. What are you going to do with that image? To educate and dear inspire. And hopefully move people to actually do something uh, on on behalf of of the subject that you photographed. Um, I it took me a long time to to figure out that conservation is really all about people. And you know this, believe it or not, kind of came as a it was kind of a shocking realization to me. <laughs> but but now when I really think about it, it's like well duh. I mean there's only one species that is looking at our images. And if we're trying to get um, people to uh, conserve something, whether it's in wildlife or a wild space, um, we, we have to move people to actually do something. And that's what conservation is. It's, it's, it's all about trying to convince people to do something. And that something could be calling a decision maker, uh, writing a letter, uh, you know, going to a rally, signing a petition... Um it, you know whatever whatever is going to be necessary to conserve you know a place or a species or way of life um, so so to me conservation photography the real work begins once you've clicked that shutter It's what you do with all those images after you've, you've made them that that separates uh, conservation photography from just kind of pure nature photography
0: and I think this is an area where I think a lot of photographers miss the boat they're out there we're out there being uh, for lack of a better word, non-consumptive users of the wildlife resource and the and the natural resource. but we miss out on going out and, and helping with projects like putting water sources in or developing springs or or helping out where other conservationists, get out and and help out more. And I think that needs to be added to that list that you're talking about, you know, as far as going to a rally, writing a letter, contacting a, a decision maker, getting out, being on the ground and actually contributing to the benefit or the betterment of that species, I think is, uh, is an area where we can all do a better job.
2: Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely agree, and that that brings up a great point um, about uh, you know. So if if you are a photographer and you're wanting to use your images for conservation in some way, you know how do you how do you do that? And um, I I'm always stressing and emphasizing the power of partnerships, um, and and it, because a lot of times as photographers, you know, we, we can only do so much, and you know, we're one person not that one person can't do a lot, Um, um, certainly can, but it, it, you know, our talent is, you know, making the images, crafting compelling stories, then, so then what do we do with those stories, and in my own work, I, I partner with conservation organizations, I've partnered with government agencies, uh, partner with funders, um, really whoever is, on the ground, actually doing the conservation work. Whether that's trying to pass legislation that's going to protect you know, X number of acres or, uh, you know, trying to uh, bring a species back, you know, from an, say, an endangered status, um, kind of whatever it is. But but that's really where the power of our stories can play a huge role in trying to, again, convince people to do something. And oftentimes, we're trying mm-hmm. to convince decision makers, whether these are... Um, uh, you know, local or state or uh, federal officials, you know, elected officials, because oftentimes they, they have the power to, to pass legislation um, or to make these decisions, you know, that can actually, you know, create protected areas or list a species or uh, release funding um, or allocate funding um, to, say, recovering species or restoring, you know, a damaged place. You know, again, whatever, whatever the goal is, but that's where our role or I, I, um, that's the role that we can play as conservation photographers. And that but those partnerships are, are absolutely key. Um, and I, I know I always kind of burst some bubbles when I when I tell photographers, it's like, look, your work all by itself probably isn't going to do a whole lot, you know, to say conserve a species or, or, or protect a place. Um, but your work in collaboration with groups who are doing that on the ground work. Now, now your work can play a very significant role. Um, So always think in terms of, of partnerships, you know, who's already doing the work, you know, that, you know, on, for the the subject that you're passionate about and that you want to photograph and you want to bring to light the story of seek those people out and, Mm -hmm. and see if there's a working relationship um, where your work can benefit their work.
0: Absolutely. I agree with that. There's never a shortage of organizations looking for volunteers to to go out and help with projects. And there's no better way for us as conservation photographers to have more buy-in than to actually be on the ground for even if it's just a day or two here and there, you know, helping out with those projects and actually doing doing the work and gathering the data, that kind of thing. Always looking for volunteers.
3: I'll just add one thing to that. Um, I think also by getting your getting your hands dirty, like literally in the soil or getting involved um, in in the project itself can also give you a perspective that could even help you get better images that can help tell the story even better, too. Right. So, I mean, it's not necessarily that you go out, take the images and then go get involved in the project. Matter of fact, it might be the other way around to be more effective is go get involved in the project, understand what the challenges are. And then you can take images that can help tell that story.
2: Yeah. Like going out with scientists or yeah, people, you know, trying to figure out, okay, we're, you know, we want to create this protected area, but you know, where are the boundaries? Um, Yeah. Just, just spending time with people. Yes. Definitely doing the work, um, that kind of work and, and people who have very different skill sets, you know, than we do as, as visual storytellers, um, yeah, they might say something that that would then spark an idea in your head for an image. It's like, oh, okay, wow, I hadn't thought about that, but now that they're saying this is important, it's like, okay, we need to illustrate X, you know, or what he just said or what she just said, and how am I going to do that in a way, um, you know, that that makes an image that then can convince whoever it is the partner is trying to convince, you know, to protect this area or
1: species. Absolutely. And there's so many projects out there. There's so many, you know, from small scale local parks to huge, you know, like you've, you've worked on some some pretty big projects and helping to preserve more land in Tongass National Forest and, you know, a whole region that are affected by salmon. I mean, there, there's huge projects but not everybody has to tackle huge projects. There's, you know, right in your own backyard, there's always going to be something that could be of benefit to, for conservation.
2: Yes. I always say start local, start, absolutely start local. Um, I, I mean, there's so many, there's so many benefits to working on a project in your backyard because you've got access typically, and you can go out at, various times a year, various times of the day, you can go back over and over again. You know, when you do work on a, on a, say a, a bigger, more remote project, you don't have that luxury of, of time and, and being able to just kind of look out the window and go, Hey, wow, the conditions are great. I'm going now. It's you know, when you're working remotely, it's like you kind of, you get what you get. Um, and you don't have a, that luxury again of, of
1: being there all the time. So yeah, start local for sure. Something along those same lines that you and I in the past have talked about, or, or you've, you've taught about, um, you may your project may actually change over time, too. That as you get involved with more people on the ground, you may learn new things. Um, you may learn new aspects of what you're trying to conserve. You may learn about new challenges as to why it needs to be conserved. Um, in particular, what I'm thinking of is, and this kind of goes back to words as well as visuals, is um, Salmon in the Trees. Like I love, I, and I know how that's evolved, how that title came about and how that project came about at this point. But me, if you want to tell tell the listeners about what does that mean? What does Salmon in the Trees mean? And how did that relate to conservation, you know, visual, the power of visual storytelling? So Salmon in the
2: Trees was my first really big conservation project. You know, prior to that, I'd been doing a lot of magazine articles, um, uh, you know, on on various topics. Um, But I, I I think I, and again, I, and I still, again, I still do magazine work, but, you know, magazine work, I mean, again, it's great, not knocking it, but, you know, it's maybe 2,000 words, maybe five or six photos and the shelf life could be a month, depending on the publication, could be a day, you know, with the way things are on the internet these days, you know, rapidly cycling through things. Um, and so I just, I just really wanted to take on a, a bigger project um, and create a book um, because I just wanted to go more in depth. I wanted to spend more time in, in a place Uh, and really come back with a much deeper uh, story. And so I decided to um, bite off um, probably more than I could chew, but that's kind of how... (laughs) That's <laughs> kinda of how these projects go, I think for anybody. Um, you know, you get really excited about something and then and then you kinda of get the green light, whether you get funding or you know, you realize or a publishing contract, whatever it is, and you're like, Okay, I'm 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 actually gonna start this project. Then you realize so you go from like kind of elation, it's like this is really gonna happen and then like in the next moment you're like, Oh my gosh, what was I thinking? This is huge. How am I gonna do this? How am I gonna tell this story? So again, this huge project, um, was to focus on the Tongass National Forest. Um, this is our the United States' largest national forest. Uh, it's in an area of Alaska known as Southeast Alaska, sometimes it's called the Panhandle of the state. It's also known as the Inside Passage. Um, the Tongass is 17 million acres. It's about the size of the state of West Virginia. Um, it's three times the size of the second largest Forest, national forest in the United States. It's it's massive, Um, and what I was trying to do was just help people understand why this forest is so important. And um, so when I started out, um, I'm like, all right, I've I've got to tell the story of this whole ecosystem. You know what it is, um, again, what what lives in it, um, why it's important for you know both wild and human communities. Um, People live there as well, Um, and so I just kind of had this, this idea in my head that it was very general. It's like, okay, let's just, you know, and I sort of had a working title at the time. It was called Treasures of the Tongass, you know, beyond the trees. I wanted, I wanted people to see beyond the trees. It, like this isn't just a bunch of trees. There's a lot of things, other species that live here, but that's still pretty general. Um, so anyway, I set off and I, I made, I don't know, I spent a couple years um, exploring this place, and, you know, the more I got into it, the more time I spent there, the more time I spent talking to people, the more time I just spent observing. Um, I I did a bunch of research, and I found this, uh, somehow, this really dry scientific article. I, I'm not a scientist by training, but, you know, I'm a avid naturalist, so I I do try and uh, read scientific papers, um, but they are hard for me to get through because I'm not a scientist. But I found one, and it talked about this connection, this rather remarkable connection between salmon and trees um, in this part of the world. But instead of saying, there are salmon in the trees, they said, this is how they phrased it, they said, um, or they referred to this connection as the upstream flow of marine-derived nutrients in a terrestrial environment. And, again, I struggled to get through this paper because the whole paper was written that way. But something something clicked. I got through it, and at the very end, I this light bulb went on in my head, and I'm like, do you mean what you're trying to tell me? Is that there are actually salmon in the trees? Because if that's what you're trying to tell me, that is incredible. And, and that concept just would not leave my head. You know, it kind of haunted me in a way. It was just, like, stuck there. It's like, okay, somehow, if I can illustrate this and tell this story to people in a way that they can get as excited about it as i did um, then i think we can help people look at this place um, in a very different way in a very holistic way the tongas was kind of the story of the tongas was always kind of painted as one of well did we cut down all the trees for timber or do we leave the forest intact that was kind of the story that was told for for many decades, really for too long. And um, no one was really telling kind of this holistic story um, of the place. So for me, that just clicked. I'm like, wow, okay, salmon in the trees. This is a place where there are salmon in the trees. So let's tell that story. Um, And I'll you know, for, for people who aren't familiar with salmon, I'll, I'll give you a little crash course uh, in their natural history. So Pacific salmon, they're born in freshwater, um, streams, rivers, and lakes. Then they migrate to the ocean where they mature. And then at some point, they migrate back from the ocean back to freshwater. And almost all the time, uh, they're headed for their home stream. They're headed for that exact same stream, river, lake system that they were born in. And not only are they headed for the exact same body of water, but they're headed for pretty much the exact same spot where they were hatched. And when you think of some of these salmon systems, sometimes it's just, it's a very short stream that could be just a couple miles long. But in other cases, it's say it's the Yukon River, which is 2,000 miles long. And uh, a stunning statistic on the on the Yukon system, which is an incredible salmon system. Fifty um, percent of the king salmon um, go all the way to the headwaters to spawn. So fifty percent of all the king salmon that are going into that Yukon River are traveling. Once they leave the ocean, they stop eating. When they when they hit fresh water as adults, to then head up to their systems to spawn they stop eating. So think about the fitness of that salmon that's got to go 2,000 miles um, just to spawn and then after they spawn they die um, So I, I always say it's like I, I dare someone to like sit on a salmon spawning stream when those adult salmon are leaving the ocean they're stop they've stopped eating all they're gonna do now is get to the spawning grounds spawn and then they're going to die. So I dare you to sit on that stream and watch these spawning salmon, and not start thinking about your own life and your own journey, and and what are you doing with your life, and what's the purpose of your life, and what are you passing on when you die? I mean, th- this is this is the power of salmon, and and um, and you've unleashed something in me now. So I'm just going to warn you because I could go on and on <laughs> and on, and on <laughs> about how amazing these creatures are, and I and and. Anyway, um, but let me get back. I'm glad you're editing this, but let me get back to um, to salmon in the trees. So anyway, so when the salmon leave um, the ocean, they enter the freshwater uh, spawning streams. um, There are a lot of other species waiting for them, uh, bears in particular. Um, The Tongass National Forest has some of the highest densities of both brown and black bears in the entire world, in part due to all those salmon um, that are flowing into there's more than five or there's close to 5,000 spawning streams throughout the Tonga. So at a certain time a year, this whole place just erupts with life. So when the salmon are coming back, they're filling millions of salmon are filling those 5,000 streams. And again, some of the highest densities of brown and black bears live here. So they're all coming down and they're scooping the salmon um, out of the streams, and a lot of times they're not eating the salmon right there in the, in the water. They're actually dragging them into the forest, so they're transferring the salmon um, from the water to the land and when they do that they're transferring all those ocean nutrients that are in the bodies of the salmon they're transferring those nutrients to the land as well and over time all the nutrients from the bodies of those salmon decompose into the soil and the trees absorb them through their roots and the real kicker and this is the light bulb for me um, about the salmon and the trees connection is that scientists have actually um, duck, um, drill tree core uh, samples, you know, out, out of trees, and they've detected ridiculously high amounts of a marine nitrogen in these trees. And this marine nitrogen, of course, comes from the salmon. Um, so there really are salmon in the trees. And it's not just like in the bark and in the trunk of the tree. It's in leaves. It's in the needles. It's um, it's in the roots. It's, it's pretty much everywhere. So... Um, yeah. So so once you understand that connection between salmon in the trees, then you can't you can't help but then think about the Tongass in this very holistic way. It's like okay, if there are salmon in the trees, then wow. Then what happens if we overfish salmon? What happens if we destroy a salmon stream because we've logged too close to the banks, and um, you know the erosion um, that is now uh, Fouling, uh, you know the 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 gravel beds that the salmon need um, to spawn. Like, what's what's going to happen to the fish? And then, and then if we degrade the salmon streams, and then the fish go away, how does that affect the forest? You know, by by not. Is by not getting this hit of marine nitrogen every single year when the when the salmon are are coming back in, you know, what what's happening to the forest? What's happening to the eagles? What's happening to the bears? What's happening to the orcas um, out in the ocean that they're feeding on the salmon? Um, you know, it's so so without me even going into kind of more of a scientific you know, ecology of the ecosystem. Instead, if I can just help people understand why it is that there are salmon in the trees, um, that's when the light bulb blinks on. And again, they really start to think about ecology and an ecosystem without me having to get all wonky about it and start talking and using terms like ecosystem and ecology. Um um, and it, and it's, it's really neat to watch it happen too. I've, I've given this, I've given my salmon in the trees presentation so many times now, and I've given it to people who've lived in the Tongass region their entire lives. I've given it to people in Iowa, I've uh, given to people in Florida. Um, and, and it doesn't really matter. It's like, it's the reaction is, is the same kind of everywhere. It's like that light bulb blinks on and people just get this big grin on their face and they're like, that is so cool. and, and I couldn't agree more. Um, it's still so cool for me every time I think about it. And I've been working on that issue for probably 15 years now.
0: And your it looks like your work goes a lot deeper than just the relationship between, you know, the salmon, the trees, the bears, the eagles. You also bring into light, you know, a little bit of the human element and the, the people who call those places home. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? And, yes, and how uh, did you get yes. in with local people to visit about that?
2: Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, so you know, you know, my goal was certainly to tell the story of of how it is that there are salmon in the trees to get people to think about uh, you know the the Tongass in a more holistic way, and then and then you know equally important, really if not more important, is then why is this connection so important both for wild and human communities. And again, I go back to, there's only one species looking at our images and listening to our stories, and that's us, that's, that's Homo sapiens, and if I can't convince people why this place is important, um, and why that connection between salmon and the trees is important, and how how can we maintain that connection, then we probably won't maintain that connection. Um so yes, the the people the people element of the story is is crucial in in any kind of conservation work. Um, people, it's just natural, it's just human nature for us to ask the question. Well, why should I care? What's in this for me? You know, what what am I going to get out of this? Um, and so, as conservation photographers and storytellers, we have to answer that question for people. We have to help them understand that. So, when I was working on the project, um, the Tongas is a it's a Again, it's vast, it's big, and it's difficult to get around. There are no roads that connect one place to another. There's no bridges that connect one place to another. So if you're going to be moving around in the Tongas, you're either going to be uh, on a boat or uh, in a small plane. Uh, it's really the only way to get around. There's about three dozen small communities um, throughout the Tongas region, and I visited almost all of them Um and in order to do that, I have to hire people, you know, to get me to these places. And then I need to stay somewhere. So along the way, I was meeting people who, um, this is, this is their home. This is where they live. They love it. Um, and so that was actually quite easy to, you know, start just talking to people. It's like, what do you, you know, tell me about your life and, and what do you value most about living here, um, you know what? What? What makes you happy? What about this way of life? Um, do you find, you know, you know, you know, why do you stay? Really, like, um, you know, if, if they if they came from somewhere else, um, of course there are native cultures uh, here who've been here for at least ten thousand years, um, you know. So this is their homelands. Um, so it's it's very important to them. Um, so talking to a diversity of people, getting their stories, um, but with that common thread of what do you value most you know, about about the Tongas and and your way of life? Um, that's so bringing those stories to light was a, a very important component of the Salmon and the Trees
1: project. When you mentioned it earlier, Amy, that you know, conservation is all about people. It's it's the people that are going to make the difference. It's the people that'll make the changes to to make it happen. You know, make a change happen. It's the people that. Like you said, well, you know, we'll ask the question, well, how does it affect me? So, so although, you know, I, I'm sure you've heard it fairly frequently where people are, oh, you know, I want to photograph the bears or I want to photograph the fish. I want to photograph landscapes, but there is so much more to it.
0: To add to that and to go back to your initial comment about being a feral kid. I think that conservation photography also gives us the opportunity to educate the public because there are so many people who are, well, generations now that are not nor have ever been feral and they've totally lost touch with the natural world. And they don't really understand how these relationships work. And so it's a good opportunity for us to be able to pass that information on to them and, and educate them about, you know, why are we so passionate about it? And why are we so passionate specifically about the salmon fisheries in Alaska. Why does it, why does it matter? You know, again, going back to what you said is what's in it for me.
2: Right. And I think, you know, in the case of the Tongass, uh, you know, when I was first starting working on, on that project, it was, you know, you're making the case to people who live there, um, which a lot of people, you, of course, you don't need to make that case to them at all, but, but some you do, um, you know just because people live there doesn 't mean they necessarily you know want to you know conserve what 's there either you know they're there and and that 's true of really anywhere you know there are plenty of people who want to exploit you know where they live um and so so oftentimes you are trying to convince you know people who live you know in these areas but but I think as time has gone on, and there's more of an emphasis and, and more serious discussion about climate change, you know, for me now, it's 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 easy or easier to make the case um, for the Tongas um, for anyone who doesn't live there. Um, You know the Tongass has been talked about for decades as being well. This could be a forest that is sequestering carbon, and this could be really important for regulating global climate. And so there's always been talk of that, but it just never went anywhere, and I think it kind of fell on deaf ears. Um, Didn't really register with decision makers or you know members of Congress. You know the Tongass is a a national forest, so. Uh, Congress does have a big say on on what happens there, but now with finally you know serious discussions on climate change, it's like okay, you know the the Tongass is sequestering, um, you know I think it's that statistic is eight percent of all the carbon found in all the national forests in the lower 48 combined. You know this is a significant um, uh, place um, in in. Um, in helping the planet be more resilient and to help regulate global climate. So now making that case and trying to convince people, it's like, okay, so yes, of course it's important for the people who live there, but it's important for all of us. Um, You know, in the United States, it's important for everybody in in the world. You know, this is a significant uh, uh, forest that can store carbon. So that's, again now that we're having more serious discussions about climate change that's a it's an easier it's an easier sell i think it's an easier case to make on that and and don you know getting back to you know what you were saying about you know you know people oh you know i just want to photograph the bear i just want to photograph the wildlife and the wild stuff and and we all do (laughs) you know like 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 myself included i mean that's what got me into uh nature photography you know when i was young was really Species other than myself, right? I really wasn't photographing people. But the more and more I got into conservation photography, it's like, wow! If I'm not telling these human stories and I'm not photographing people, then I'm I'm really only telling maybe half the story. I, I'm missing a really important component. And going back to you know the power of stories, the other the other reason that stories are so powerful for humans. Um, is that most often stories are about humans. And so I always um, you know, advise uh, you know, photographers wanting to use their work for conservation. Um, it's like, look, if, if let, let's say you're focusing, your, your subject is polar bears and, and you're trying to get polar bears you know, conserved or listed on the endangered species list or whatever it is. And so you're really honing in on, on polar bears. Tell that story through a human being. So whether that human being is um, a polar bear biologist, you know, that that's the leading scientist on, you know, on the natural history of polar bears, you know, bring that human element in somehow because people really relate to stories about other people. So you can tell you can still tell your stories about polar bears or salmon or whatever, but just tell it through a person. Uh, again, whether it's a, a scientist, maybe it's just someone who's an everyday person who's so incredibly passionate about uh, where they live or a species that they're attached to or, or something um, uh, that, but but get that human element in there because um, it, there are very few people, I think that could probably sit through, you know, a presentation, or say uh, a movie, or a whole book that's just about nature. I think a lot of us could. You know, it certainly on this conversation could, and maybe some of our our listeners and our viewers could. But when you bring the human element in there, it just it just adds a whole uh, different dimension um, to that story. Um, And along those lines, I I will say I have never, ever considered myself a a people photographer. Um, And so when I took on my second big project, um, which was spawned um, from Salmon in the Trees, um, this second project, which is called the Salmon Way, it's all about people. And I have to say that took me way, way out of my comfort zone. but I also realized it's the way I had to tell the story. So um, just a little bit of background. So when I was working on the first project, Salmon in the Trees, and I was traveling throughout the Tongass region, and I was meeting with different you know people, and I was going to different communities, these communities are very different from one another. They just have a different feel, They're kind of a different personality to them. Um, but I noticed this common thread among all these different communities and all these different People that lived throughout the Tongass was salmon. Salmon was this common language that everybody spoke, and it was kind of this 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 common thread that wove among people's lives. And so it made me wonder: it's like, okay, if salmon are this important and this common language in just this one part of Alaska, are they are they that common bond, that common language in other parts of Alaska where salmon are? Um, so that took me all over the state um, to different, um, very different ecosystems, uh, in which salmon live, uh, and to different, uh, communities, um, where people live with salmon. And so, um, again, this is, this book is all about people. Um, yes, there are photographs of salmon and their habitat, um, and, and other wildlife that, that, uh, rely on salmon. Um, but there are a lot of people photos and it's not just portraits. It's, it's people. Um, I'm trying to illustrate different ways of life, um, that salmon make possible, um, for people, um, throughout Alaska. And I'm really honing in on the relationships, um, between, um, salmon, uh, and people in Alaska. Um, and, and, and the way that this one really got started, uh, I, when I was working on the salmon in the trees project, I met with a Alaska native woman and she's a master weaver and she was weaving, uh, this gorgeous robe, uh, out of mountain goat wool. And, um, and then next to her, uh, loom, she had, um, uh, pieces of spruce root that she also uses to weave baskets, um, out of. And I just, I said something to her. I, I said, wow, you know, with, with all the plentiful resources in your homeland, again, this is she's Alaska Native woman. She's Klinkit. Um, you know, this is this is where her people have lived for ten thousand years. And I, I said, with all the plentiful resources in your homeland, it's easy to see how your people have thrived. You know, throughout you know thousands of years. And and she she stopped what she was doing. Again, she was very intent on her weaving, and she just stopped. She put everything down, and she turned and she looked me right in the eye, and she said, "Resources?" I said the mountain goat and the trees and the salmon. Those aren't resources. We have relationships with the salmon, with the trees, with the goats. And and then we had a little conversation about that, you know, about this difference between resources and relationships. And that one haunted me too, and it, that just stuck in my head. It's like, oh my gosh. What a difference one word makes in how we view something. You know, if, if you start calling things resources, so if, if the Tongass National Forest is just nothing but resources, then you start looking at it in terms of timber, minerals, um, seafood, uh, you know, copper tubing, you know, lumber, frozen fish sticks, you um, and you're not thinking of it in terms of there are salmon in the trees. Um, you know, there are bears, you know, that are feeding on the salmon. There are people who live here who are, uh, you know, making uh, clothing and robes and canoes and totem poles and and, and their whole way of life revolves around um, catching salmon and preserving salmon. It's like, that's just a completely different worldview. And, and I didn't really realize how... Western uh, and colonial my view was of the world as much as I didn't believe that it was until I had that conversation with her about the difference between resources and relationships. So I always encourage people now. It's like, okay, whenever you find yourself saying that word, resources, because we use it all the time, right? We'll say natural resources. Mm -hmm. Try and catch yourself and just stop just for a second. just, Just be aware that you said it and go and then replace it. And so instead of, you know, natural resources, just say, you know, oh, these natural relationships and just why, like something, your, your brain is going to get rewired and you're really going to start looking at wherever it is you are and whatever it is you're talking about, you're going to look at it in a more holistic way. Uh, and, and it really makes you start thinking about what is my relationship Um, with nature? What is my relationship with, with salmon, with eagles, with bears, with water, with mountains, with dirt? Um, And, and it just, uh, again, you will, I I dare you, (laughs) I dare you to not like kind of change your worldview, you know, by, by just replacing that word resources with relationships.
0: I think that's probably the most important thing that we can do as conservation photographers that's the most important impact we can make is to help people develop a relationship i mean when you one of the areas of course that has a strong tie to the the salmon um the pacific salmon is uh the area that we spent a lot of time talking about on past podcasts where the the pebble mine was proposed and it's not just that the mine was proposed in the area that the mine was at but the extraction process was going to have the biggest impact and that was going after a, a copper resource but the extraction process was going to basically create an environment that would kill the salmon fishery or have the potential to kill the salmon fishery and for people not to look at that holistically as you were as you were saying and not look at the impact that it's going to have on the on the peoples and that have moved into the area, but also the native people, the wildlife species, you know, that live in that area, the impact that it would potentially have had on them just based on the impact on the or the effect on the salmon fishery is what in the end made the difference. And there were a lot of different groups that, that took part in getting that stopped and shut down. However, it is that holistic uh, point of view that people had to take to to get to that point because it, it looked like there was a potential for it finally to happen. It's been a project that's proposed for, you know, I think they've been working on getting that shut down for over 20 years, and it just keeps rearing its head so we continue to have to fight the same fight.
3: To, get, to Amy's point, I, I'll tell you what, if there's anything anybody takes away from tonight, I think that's just that what you just said right there. Instead of looking at things as resources and looking at them as relationships, that's huge. And, you know, the problem is, is there are a lot of people that it's going to continue to get brought up because there's always going to be people that look at those things as resources. So, yeah, I mean, I I'm going to take your challenge, Amy, and I'm going to try to, to think about things more in that way. I think a lot of us do, but even I catch myself sometimes saying those things. And I think even, even myself catching myself doing it and changing those words has power. Um, especially when you're talking with other people. Right. So nah, that's, that's really neat. That's a good point, Ron and Amy. I think that's the pro tip of the, the month right there. So.
1: <laughs> yeah. I've heard the same thing. I've had the same types of conversations. It's well, Alaska was, you know, we bought Alaska for its resources. Well, there's more resources than what you dig out from under the ground, but I love that terminology about relationships and, and basically summarizing what I'm trying to explain to people that there is something more than just taking resources. There's something to be said about saving and preserving resources too for for what they are in their natural state. So I love, yeah, I really like that that phrasing of of a relationship.
2: And you know, when you, when you think of and yeah, Don, what you just said is is, is spot on because when we, when we use the word resource, resources, we think of taking there's, there's not, there's not giving, there's not caring. There's not like this reciprocity, which is what a relationship is. We're just taking. And so, yeah, to me, resources, you might as well be saying commodities. Again, it's, it's, it's timber, it's minerals, it's fish sticks, it's, um, you know, whatever it is you're taking, (laughs) <laughs> and, and and you're not you're not giving anything back and you're not again, you're not caring. And and you know, and that's a relationship. And so when I started this second project, um, the salmon way, which again kind of focuses on the relationships between salmon and people and a wide diversity of people throughout Alaska. I really wanted to drill down and and really get at, you know, whoever it was I was talking to, I really wanted to get at the heart of their relationship with salmon. And so wherever I went and whoever I met with, and again, I I really set out to meet with as diverse of a group of people as I could. So I met with Alaska Native people, again, who've lived there for 10,000 years, um, and different Native cultures. There are a lot of different Native cultures in Alaska. So I was meeting with Native people. I was meeting with commercial fishermen, you know, who are catching and selling salmon. I'm meeting with sport fishermen um, who are, uh, you know, catching maybe trout. You know, because the trout are following the salmon and feeding on the salmon, so maybe they're going after trophy trout. Um, but they're, but they're, they're able to do that because the salmon are there. Um, uh, I did, you know, I talk with people who are involved in the bear viewing industry um, because usually when you're viewing bears they're there because the salmon are there. Um, so salmon are driving everything. I mean, they, they drive the ecosystem, they drive the economy, they drive culture. Um, they're just an incredible way of different ways of life. But I was really, really trying to get at for every person that's like, okay, what, tell me about your relationship with salmon. What does salmon mean to you? Um, and, and it was really interesting. Um, over time, I I really thought I was going to get very different answers, depending on who it was I was talking to, especially like, how could a commercial fisherman um, tell me the same thing that Alaska native person was telling me or that a sport fisherman was telling me? Um, I I, I thought I was going to get very, very different responses to that and to that question. And when I came back, you know, after several years of doing all this field work and meeting with a lot of different people, I, you know, typed up and transcribed all the interviews and printed them all out. And I had them all spread out over the floor. And I, because at that point I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I going to stitch this story together? You know, what are the common threads? What are the themes I'm trying to get across here? And I was really overwhelmed because there's like, I don't know, 40 different interviews spread out all over the floor and pieces of paper all over the place. And I'm like, oh, how am I going to do this? And I started picking up pieces of paper. And I just kind of started highlighting certain words that were sticking out, you know, to me that were coming out. And then I kind of put them all down again. And then I I looked uh, again, and I started looking at the highlighted words. And it's like, oh my gosh, everyone's telling me pretty much the same thing. It doesn't matter if people fish for their food, for their livelihood, for fun, for their culture. They are all valuing salmon in the same way. So these answers were things like, you know, what does salmon mean to you? The answers were family, community, culture, uh, my connection to a home stream, uh, my connection to uh, my community, um, a valued way of life. No one was talking about this is how I make my living. It's you know, it's my money. It's um, it's it's sustenance. I mean, people would say things like that but that's not that is not really what their relationship was all about and so so to me again the light bulb went on it's like wow uh, um, you know these these fish do so much more than just feed people and uh, and or provide a way to to make a living Um, this is this is a way of life a very valued way of life for people all over the state um, from all walks of life and it's like there's there's the story uh, you know, that's, you know, again, telling telling about these relationships and, and just how important they are. And, you know, when, when you think of traditional conservation, the way you know, I guess I, I, I would say kind of like a Western way, uh, like Western kind of white led colonial way of viewing conservation in the United States has always kind of been, all right, here's this wild place. And we're just going to draw a box around it, and we're going to lock it up and protect it. And people can't—you may—you could go visit, but no one can live there, and we can't really do anything in it. Um, I'm not saying—I'm not trying to pass judgment and saying if that's right or wrong or good and or bad. But that is typically the way that a lot of conservation has been done. It's how we've created national parks. It's how we've created—you know—a lot of, say, a marine protected area or wildlife refuges. And what's often not being told in, in those stories of how those areas got created is who was there, who was living there, what people were there. We often kicked people off of their land in order to then draw that box around it and call it a park or call it a refuge or whatever it is we were going to call it. Um, um, and so and so conservation again it's we've we've kind of skipped over human beings and we've 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 left that human story out of it and in leaving the human story out of it we've left humans out of it and so when i get set about to really think about how to tell this story that that has ended up being you know the salmon way it's like you know instead of just glossing over people and going right to salmon and their habitat Um, Because ultimately, ultimately what we do want to protect are salmon and their habitat. But let's start, let's start with people and let's start with the relationship that people have with salmon and their habitat. And then let's really get at what do people value most about salmon in Alaska? It's the way of life that salmon allow people to live. So let's tell that story, and then what will follow from that? If you're if you're bringing to light th- these incredibly deep, rich, personal stories about what people value most about salmon, it will then follow that if, if if people want to continue this very valued way of life, then they have to conserve the salmon and their habitat. Um, so I kind of call it a backdoor approach to conservation, but I also think it should be the front door approach. It's really how I think if we're going to have any kind of conservation gains or wins um, going forward, I think it's the way we have to be telling the stories. We cannot leave the human element um, out of it. And kind of no matter where it is that we're, that we're focusing on. I mean, in Alaska, part, part of the reason why I focus on Alaska and salmon is because Alaska is one of the last places in the world where salmon still are. Because and largely that's due to their habitat still being um, intact. Um, But down here, so down here meaning where I live in Washington, you know, I live in the ecosystem of the Tongass National Forest. That same ecosystem, Uh, it's a coastal temperate rainforest. Um, We once had some of the greatest salmon-producing systems on on earth, Um, and now we have less than ten percent of our historical abundance. So. Down here, conservation is very different when you're talking about forests and salmon. You know, we're, we're talking about uh, restoration and recovery. That's a very different story um, to tell and try to convince people to do something different um, than, than just conserve what's already here. We're actually trying to bring things back. Um, but, but it's still, you know, that, that human element, I think, is even more important in places where we're trying to restore and recover. Um, because we've lost, um, you know, we've lost so much uh, in 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 much of the lower forty eight. So how do we, and other parts of the world, how do we help people understand what they've lost when they don't even there's no memory of of what they've lost? So I think our 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 stories our stories I think um, uh, are, are even more important. I think in places that that we're trying to restore and recover. Um, again, I, I've, I've been focusing a lot of my work in Alaska just because there, that Alaska is a place where you don't have to restore and recover. You just have to maintain what's still there. And you'd think, well, that's an easy sell. And it's like, it isn't, (laughs) it isn't primarily because of, again, that, that resource word, you know, there are a lot of, resources, if we're going to think in in those terms, there are a lot of resources in Alaska that people do want to take out uh, of their salmon being one of them, uh, minerals being another oil and gas, uh, you know, timber, whatever it is, There's, there's a lot there that people want to take. So that's kind of that that's always the challenge in, in a place in a place that is still very wild and is still functioning. Um, you've got people that are viewing it in terms of resources, but then let's tell that story about people who are viewing it in terms of relationships.
1: Well, like you said, you know, it it, beca- it comes down to the familiarity. You know, a lot of people are going to be familiar with resources. They can understand timber. They they, you know, maybe they're doing construction on their home or they just bought a piece of furniture. They understand timber. They understand food. They understand fish sticks. That's the familiar to them. So they see it as that resource. That's how it affects them. But if you start talking about the connection of all the other things that they're also connected to in a place that is very far away that many people will never see, that's where the disconnect can very often start to, start to develop and they start to go, well, you know, how's that going to affect me if if I'm never going to go there, I'll never visit there. Or I'm living in Florida and I can't really get much farther away in the U S from up there. <laughs> so yeah, bringing that connection back in and, and showing them the familiar on something that may not be today, be familiar with them. And, and obviously then, you know, back to the, the, the tools that we're using is the photography and the, and those, those words to, to communicate all that.
0: Another aspect of it is, is you can take the Tonga, Tongass and the relationship with the salmon, and you can replace that with the sagebrush grasslands and the relationship with the, the sage grouse or with the relationship of the bison or the prairie dog. You can just kind of plug and play all these different natural resource relation or natural relationships. And, you know, why do we not want to inundate the sagebrush grasslands with wind farms? what is that what is the impact on that to the sage grouse which are already a species in decline so it's you know there's a, a kind of a plug and play that we can do with these conservation ideals even though you know the species are different and the the impact on the different ecosystems is is more or less significant there's still the ability to tell those stories with our relationship or with our excuse me, there's still the ability to tell those stories with our images, you know as well as our words. And I, I think you know what you've said about telling the story through a person, you know, throwing that human element in there I think is is critical but make sure you're watching for those stories unfolding, all around you and not just you know in one isolated part of the world and you know the the tongas is it's an international relationship because we not only in the you know the inside passages not only southeast alaska but it's also british columbia and you know the impact that we we have to manage things internationally it's bigger than just you know, one nation, obviously, because there are the First Nations peoples that you've talked about and that you discuss in your book. But there are also, you know, different uh different communities and different styles of management internationally that everyone needs to collaborate on for these things to be effective.
2: Yes, and I, I think you hit it on the head with with kind of this this idea of of if you show people one relationship so in this case you know the relationship that people have with salmon it does get their wheels spinning it's like oh regardless of whether they live in florida or or ohio or or wherever it's like okay so what's what's my relationship to where i live you know do i have a home stream do i have a a pond do i have a lake do i where do i get my water um, you know, where is my food being grown or where is it coming from? And, and, and what's my relationship with, with the dirt I live on or, or where's my happy place? You know, where, where do I go back to time and time again? Where do I take my kids to where, um, you know, and, and oftentimes for people it's, you know, that happy place is, is, uh, you know, a natural place. Again, it's a, it's a body of water. It's, it's, it's a grove of trees. It's a place where you know people can watch birds or hear birds or or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, so getting people thinking in terms of relationships and and this you know in Alaska this concept of a home stream and I'd never heard that term you know a, a home stream until you know spending time with people in Alaska and it's Alaska's so big and so vast and I was so incredibly fortunate to travel to so many different places where salmon are but I in talking with people it's like they don't get to do that if you live on the Yukon you're pretty much going to be on the Yukon or you live in Bristol Bay that's 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 what you know that's the salmon stream that's your home stream um, or the Yukon is your home stream, or you know, some, the Taku in in southeast Alaska, and the Tongass, that's your home stream. But that's how a lot of people referred to it as, and I just thought that was beautiful, um, because again, it's 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 speaking to that relationship, you know, by by calling it a home stream, and you know, working on that on the salmon way, you know, for for so long, it's it's really got me thinking about my my own relationships, like with you know, where is my home stream? Um, how do I think about food? Um, you know, where, you know, where's my food coming from? Um, um uh, real basic stuff that I really kind of took a lot of that for granted. There was, uh, I, you'll appreciate this. Um, when I was in one of the Alaska native villages, um, and again, I mean, salmon is, salmon built a lot of these cultures. It has sustained people both, uh, spiritually, culturally, and, you know, just from a, a physical sustenance standpoint again for thousands of years um i somebody a native woman said to me oh well you you know you are store dependent and that term (laughs) i just kind of that 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 one talk about haunting me. I think about that one a lot. It's like I am store dependent. I mean, let's say let even if I grew a garden or you know or grew food in a garden, it's like I am I am still I am store dependent, and that's that's not um, that's not a great way to live when you think about it. It's kind of tenuous, but but we just don't we don't think about these things you know very much until until we have to, right? And another, I'll I'll share a quick story with you. Um, Again, in a, in a native village, I was in a smokehouse, um, and and smokehouses are they're, they're going all the time at a certain time of year when the salmon are coming in. And um, for people, when they when they if you ask them, you know, how do you define happiness? How do you define, um, uh, you know, contentment? I guess or security, like safety and security, they would say a full smokehouse. When my smokehouse is filled. I feel really good because I know I have enough. I, I've got enough food that's going to get me through the winter. You know, so just that idea of, of um, you know, of, of enough and, and, and what, is, what is happiness and what is wealth, really. I mean, to them, that's, they are rich. And and I heard that term a lot or that word a lot. People would say, we are rich. If that smokehouse is filled and if salmon keep coming back year after year, we are the richest people you know, uh, uh, in the universe. And to me, an outsider like me, you know, with, with more uh, of a Western view and a Western upbringing, you know, I'm going into a very remote village and I would, with my world view, I would probably never use the word rich, you know, for people in that village, but I came to learn, it's like, wow, there's nothing, there's nothing better, um, than, than living in a place that is providing for your, um, your family and, and, and you and your community and your culture and has been doing that for thousands of years. And you're not growing, you're not growing the food. You're not hurting it. You know, you're not raising livestock. Um, it's just, it just shows up like salmon just, if, if they can do what salmon do, this incredible gift, you know, of life shows up in in people's home streams every year. And so think about your, again, your worldview and, and how you would then view the salmon um, every, every year they come back. You'd be, you know, think about if you're on the receiving end of a gift, you know, someone gives you a gift, you you know, you know, what do you do? You give thanks and, and you give back, you know, so it's that reciprocity that ha- that happens when we actually ha- actually have a relationship with something like salmon or, um, you know, something something in nature. There's there's that relationship there. So I heard the word rich a lot um, from people. I heard the word gift a lot. Salmon are a gift. They're a gift to the land, the water, the people. You know our communities—they are a gift, and and we are rich, and so this whole idea of wealth—you know—and how do we define wealth? Um, again, for me, it was completely turned on its head, and and it and it's really made me think about my own life and and my relationships with with
1: food. Certainly, that puts a whole new perspective on daily gratitudes, doesn't it? You know, they, they oh, say yes. that you know that's always a, a good. You know, way to put, you know, to kind of start your day, you know, talk about your, your daily gratitudes of, you know, even the simplest thing, you know, your cup of hot tea or hot chocolate or whatever it may be you drink. But it really puts a different perspective on that. So as we kind of wrap up our our conversation about conservation photography, what if somebody was an aspiring conservation photographer, I'm sure you get asked this a thousand times, what would be a couple of tips you would recommend for them? Yes. So, if you want to use your images
2: uh, for conservation, um, yeah, I, I'd say uh, the first thing: um, pick something that you are passionate about. I can't really emphasize that enough. Um, you know, a lot of people say, "Well, well, okay, what, you know, what needs to be told? Like, what are the important stories? What's a story that needs to be told?" Um, versus really asking themselves, "What am I passionate about? What moves me?" Um, You know, what would I fall on my sword for if I had to? Um, That's what I I really want people to get at. It's like, what are your passions? And so why is that important? Um, Because these projects, these these aren't like one and done. You don't work on them for an afternoon. Um, They can be years in the making. Um, Salmon in the Trees um, was a rather quick project in the grand scheme of conservation photography. That was a three-year project to actually make the book. Um, but I'm still working on it. You know, I've, I've since made exhibits and um, partnered with all kinds of uh, different organizations. Um, so I've been working on that one really for 15 years. Uh, the Salmon Way took me five years to actually produce the book, um, but I'm still working on that one. Again, collaborating with, with different organizations. So and my point is these, these projects take on a life of their own. You never really know where they're going to go. I had no idea both of these would be going on as long as they have um i'm I'm thrilled in many ways that they are and in other ways it's it's kind of distressing that we keep having to be eternally vigilant um about places like the tongas but that is the nature of conservation so passion passion will keep you going it'll carry you through those those ups and those downs and there are downs and particularly when you are trying to figure out how am I going to tell this story or how am I going to raise more funds to get me wherever it is I need to go? Um, how am I going to find partners, uh, especially at the beginning? It, it can be really overwhelming, but, um, and it's really easy to give up or to not start at all. Um, when you really start thinking of the logistics and, and what has to happen, it, it can just be too much, but that passion, it's, that passion's not going to let you give up. So find what you're passionate about. Um, pursue that um, and find partners for sure. Um, I, I think maybe you know the, I guess the two P's I would say you know passion and partners um, I think will take you a long way in any kind of conservation photography work. Um, the partners can really help amplify your story they can help shape your story they can help inform you um, which will help you make more powerful images and and more powerful stories. Um, So passion and partners. um, Absolutely. And then and then really think in terms of, you know, the real work begins once um, once you've made the images and once you've created whatever tools you're going to create to tell the story. And when I say tools, it could could be a book. Doesn't have to be. Uh, Could be uh, presentations that you give in person. It could be a, a traveling exhibit. Uh, could be, you know, a pamphlet that gets distributed through your partners. Um, could be a website. Could be a social media campaign. Whatever tools you're going to make, um, a, your your partners can really help uh, amplify that and and get that out. But 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 think in terms of. Um, you know, what are the most effective tools I can make? You know, every all photographers, we all want to make a book, right? (laughs) I mean, who doesn't? I mean, a book is a it's as my publisher says, you know, it's an artifact. It's a curated experience and they have lasting power. I mean, there's a lot of power in a book, even though like today with everything, social media and everything happening so quickly, it's like it's really hard to walk into a politician's office and and give them a, a tweet or give them an Instagram image. It's like, but you lay a book on their desk and you leave it with them. And and that book has a compelling cover and a catchy title. And it's like, okay, this, you know, that then in their head, they're like, all right, this this warrants my attention. I may not know much about the Tongas, but this book is saying to me that I need to pay attention to it.
1: Those are great great ideas you know so i'm thinking of those three p's this is my marketing with the four p's that we've always learned of but you've got to, if you want your project to happen you focus on the passion you focus on the product on the on the partner so you take those that concept of those three p's and just kind of roll with it so yeah. so much yeah. great information amy i mean you're you are obviously so passionate about um all the work <laughs> that you've done and the I'm sure there's a gazillion things you're still hoping to work on. So I look forward to seeing what else you have coming down, down the pipeline to add in another piece. So, so thank you very much for joining us this evening and um, to all of our listeners. Thank you for, for listening to, to another episode of the nature photographer podcast, and you will be able to catch, catch us again um, by visiting the wild and exposed Podcast wherever you download podcasts. And we will catch you next time. Thank you again, Amy, and and see you again soon, Ron and Jason.